You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. So God's table is not segregated. Last week, um, we had the story of Acts. It ended with a letter making, making a way through one of the early central crises of, of the early church, which was how do you reconcile this ancient animosity, this ancient hatred between Jew and Gentile? Because the reality was God had chosen to extend salvation to the Gentiles. This was abundantly clear whenever the early church announced that Jesus was the rescuer, the Messiah, and the Lord of all the nations. And the people from the nations, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, heard this announcement and were met by the Holy Spirit. They responded in faith. The Holy Spirit filled their hearts the same as, as the Holy Spirit had filled the Jews' hearts. And so James, Paul, Silas, Peter, Barnabas, um, all of them had to admit God doesn't play favorites. The Holy Spirit had poured it in. There was no denying God's choice. The problem is it's really hard to live into that new reality. That's something else entirely. So they sent a letter. Do you remember this? It's in Acts 15. You can go back and read it if you haven't. They sent a letter up to Antioch trying to clear a way so that Jews and Gentiles could share a table together. There wouldn't be a segregated table. Do you remember what it said in the letter? It sounds really weird to our ears. What it did is it asked the Gentiles to please refrain from eating foods sacrificed to idols or meat that had been strangled or meat with the blood still in it and to steer clear of sexual immorality. Now, as a church, we still talk quite a bit about steering clear of, of sexual immorality. That stayed consistent throughout all the letters in the, in the New Testament. There's a lot of debates about that today. We don't talk much about the food purity laws anymore. These seem really obscure to us. Uh, but they were incredibly important in the early church, the, the, the table and the bed. Why were these things so important? Well, if you think about it, these are both sort of the ancient places of intimacy. You have to lay down your weapons in those places, at the table and the bed. When two nations and tribes are at peace, they share a table together. They entrust their children in marriage to one another. When two nations or tribes are at war, they violate the sacred trust of the table. They violate the sanctity of the bed, often very violently. And so we see in this letter that the Jerusalem Council sent. They said, do whatever is necessary in your Christian fellowship to make it abundantly clear that you can sit down and eat in peace, that Jesus Christ is your peace. Do what is necessary to desegregate the table to preserve the sanctity of the bed. Do what is necessary to demonstrate that peace now exists between these two peoples who are traditionally segregated and at war. So today, I wanna turn our attention to the table because this comes up again in the letter to the Romans that we're looking at. The table was of first importance in the early Christian communities, and in a lot of ways, it's, it's really become obscured to us. We don't talk about this so much anymore. But the metaphor of the table and the reality of it, it shows up all over the Old and New Testament. Do you remember in the prophets uh, that one of the uh, most lovely, beautiful promises of the new day when the rescuer came is that God would set a table in the wilderness where all of the nations would come and feast, where, where the poor would be welcomed alongside the wealthy, where enemies would sit alongside each other and, and, and feast at the table of God's kingdom. Jesus talks about this in Luke. In Luke's gospel, Jesus said, there's going to come a day 
where people come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and they will feast at the table of the kingdom of heaven. And he showed it, too. This is important. Do you remember what Jesus got in trouble for? For sitting down at table with tax collectors and sinners. The ones who should have been on the outside, he welcomed on the inside. Well, this is something that we still struggle with today. I mean, we heard it literally, poignantly in Dr. McKinney's story of when he was in a segregated army coming back from basic training and and stood outside a window, not allowed into the dining room, but seeing uh, white German POWs being served with white tablecloths and china and cut glass while while the African-American soldiers were, were left on the outside in the colored dining room. We see it uh, metaphorically, we talk about this, how people are not given their place at the table, are not given equal access to, to power or to say. Now, as back in the first century, what we do and how we handle the table stands as one of the best measures of whether or not a people understands, really understands this announcement that Jesus is the rescuer and the Lord of every nation and people and tribe under heaven. Whether or not we understand that. In this church, we still struggle to live out this reality, to open up our table. You know, we're struggling with it right now at UPC. You've noticed the signs here in the evening where we have signs up that say we've, we've now limited who can participate in Larson Hall in the meals in the evening and the morning to people who are within this worshiping congregation. And we talk about this each week as a staff. We, we don't feel comfortable with this. What happened is, is some of our guests, some of our neighbors who were coming simply to the meal were... Where uh, there were violent altercations going on or threats of violence. And so the best solution we've come up with in our best thinking is to say, all right, we're just going to have to limit who can come. But we don't like that. It honestly feels to us like this is, this is an impossible situation. We need a new way through. We need to pray for a new way through. We need some vision as a people on how we, we keep our table open to our neighbors and to one another. And this is where the letter to the Roman believer speaks into this impossibility of segregated places in our church and our world with the good news, with the announcement of the power of God unto salvation, which is our only hope. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Romans, if you, if you look in your um, Bibles, Romans comes after Acts. So we have the four Gospels that tell the story of Jesus. We have the, the Acts of the Apostles that tell the story of this announcement, this good news coming out. And then we get Paul's letter to the Romans. It doesn't come first because it's the first one written. It's not. Thessalonians is. It doesn't come first because it's the last one written. That's probably Philippians. It comes first because it's the longest one written. Uh, fun fact for you, Paul's letters are just arranged in the New Testament. The longest one comes first, the shortest one, Philemon, comes last. That's just how it got arranged. But Romans has been a remarkably important letter in the history of the church. Now, in this short sermon that I have, there's not time to tell you everything there is to say about Romans. So we're just going to look at it with this one question in view. How do we get through the impossible situation of a segregated table? That's our only question tonight. But I'd encourage you to read this book Um, letter over and over. You will not be disappointed. Paul wrote the letter probably from Corinth. Here's what he was doing is he was planning to go to Spain actually to uh, announce the gospel out in Spain. And on his way to Spain, he was going to visit these congregations in Rome. He did not found the churches in Rome, uh, all these house congregations, but he'd heard about them. Uh, They were well-known, and part of the reason they were well-known, which we'll get to in a second, is Jews from Rome had been kicked out of Rome and scattered all over, and Paul had met some of them. 
So he talks about hearing from them. Let's stand and read together, actually, the, the verses that I, that I chose, although we're going to look at quite a number, on page 914 of your Black Bibles. 914, we're going to read from verse 8 to verse 16. And this is Paul's greeting to, to the Christians, who are the believers who are in Rome. Let's read together. Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his Son, is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. For I am longing to see you, so that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, or rather, so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we delve into and speak into mysteries that uh, we don't understand and we seek to know more of. But you know, you were there at the beginning, laying the foundations of the world. You will come back at the end and set it all to rights. And so now at this moment and this time, would you please join your Holy Spirit to the words of my mouth? so that what I say and how we hear it will be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray this, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So even though Paul didn't establish, did not establish the church in Rome, he's really well acquainted with them. You hear this in verses 1-8, um, because your faith is proclaimed or announced throughout the world. And his best, two of his best friends, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, have a house church in Rome. He met them when he was doing missionary work. They were together in Corinth and also in uh, Ephesus. Um, and now Priscilla and Aquila have gone back to Rome. In, in verse uh, 3 of chapter 16, at the very end, Paul's giving greetings to all the house churches in Rome. And he says, greet Prisca, that's Priscilla, and Aquila, who have worked with me in Christ Jesus, and who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. I always figured a couple that his names rhyme, like Priscilla and Aquila, would have matching bowling shirts, even in the early church. So Paul is well acquainted with um, what is going on in Rome. And what is going on in Rome is the same chronic condition that is faced in every single Christian church. What do you do about the Jewish-Gentile divide? It's the same problem of the table that shows up in every single one of Paul's letters when you go back and read them. Read them. And as apostle to the Gentiles, Paul is probably the best one equipped to speak into this. Here's what's happening in particular in Rome. 
Uh, this letter is written in the late 50s, right? In the early 40s, there was an emperor who was called Claudius. And he kicked all of the Jews, probably up to about 10,000 Jews, if not more, out of Rome. The reason was there, was there was a squabble, there was some fighting in among the Jews, potentially because some of them were converting to Jesus Christ, one ancient historian talks about. And, and so they just all got kicked out of Rome. Now, years later, in, in the year 54, there was another emperor called Nero, and he rescinded Claudius's edict and let all the Jews come back. So now thousands of Jews are coming back into the city. They're setting up their businesses. They're re-entering their synagogues, and they're in a city that doesn't want them. They're in a pagan city that would rather not have them. The Christians at the time, there's maybe 200 Christians at the time. There's not that many. They don't meet in one room like we all do here. They meet in smaller gatherings in individual homes. And these gatherings are segregated. Some of the homes are Jewish Christians. Some of the homes are Gentile Christians. Now, Paul sees this situation and seeks to address it. We pick this up. It's hinted at in some of the first chapters when he says in those verses that we read that he longs to see a harvest among them in in Rome. Paul's harvest is always a harvest that looks to the end of time, that looks to the end when Jesus comes back. And the harvest for Paul as apostle to the Gentiles is that when Jesus comes back and lays out this feast of the kingdom table, the Gentiles and the Jews will be sitting right next to each other. That's the harvest. So to right now have a church in Rome where this isn't happening means that they're living out the gospel in a way that doesn't even match what the gospel says. Because the announcement of Jesus as rescuer and Lord is an announcement that he's coming back, he's setting that table, and ancient enemies will sit next to each other. So if in the here and now those ancient enemies aren't sitting next to each other, the gospel is not being fully announced. Now we also can tell this is true because when you read further in Romans, you get to the end of the chapter, and from 12, end of the chapter, end of the letter, from chapter 12 up to about chapter 15, Paul gets really, really practical about some of these issues. He talks in chapter 12. Don't think about yourself more highly than you ought to think about yourself, he says. What you need to be doing is outdoing one another in love. He plays this out with how they live with their neighbors and the authorities around Rome. And then he plays it out among their congregation, specifically what? With their table fellowship. He says to them, those of you who think you're stronger... Because you know it's just superstition, all this food sacrifice to idols. Don't look down on those whom you consider weaker, the people who, for matters of conscience, don't eat certain things. The bottom line is there's a rule of love here. If your brother or sister could not, in good conscience, eat certain things, don't serve those things. Sit with your brother or sister. He talks at the end of chapter 14 about don't put a stumbling block in anybody else's way. Do whatever it takes to build the church up. Do whatever it takes to make for peace. Desegregate the table. And he says at the end of 15, you know, I know I've spoken really boldly on some of these things to you guys. You don't even know me, he says in chapter 15. But I am an apostle to the Gentiles, so I feel like I can do this. Now you'd think that in Romans, because that's all very good teaching, that Paul could just go right from being anxious to see them and sharing a gift and a harvest into what that's going to look like with table fellowship. But what do you know? He puts like nine chapters in between. I think more than that, 11, to give Romans pride a place at the beginning of all of them. 
Why is this issue so chronic in the church? Why is the segregation issue so chronic in the church from the beginning of the church until now? I'm going to suggest that one of the reasons is we don't pay enough attention to what is in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. We too easily skip right to the programs or the ideas of what it should look like and how do we make what it should look like happen. We start with our efforts. But what Paul does in the letter to the Romans is he says, before I get there, before we talk about this harvest that I'm expecting in Rome, let's take some time and look at what God has done. Because what God has done to make a way for this reconciliation is unbelievable in human history. Now, like I said, I can't take you through Romans 1 through 11 in the next five minutes. Well, how many of you would stick around for an hour? I think I can take you through it in an hour. You want to? <laughs> just kidding. What I can do, though, is to just give you some headlines to look at these. And here's why. See, Paul is not naive. Paul knows that there are forces that lead to division and to violence, and they're not simply a matter of personal taste or predilection. There are cosmic forces at play. There are powers in this world. And what it will take to reconcile is a power that is greater than all the powers that destroy. And you hear that in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith as it is written. The one who is righteous will live by faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's just an announcement. It's an announcement of God, what God has already done. It's an announcement that Jesus is the rescuer. It's an announcement that Jesus is the Lord of every nation and power that is out there. That God has acted to set the worlds to right. See, what Paul goes on to tell us as we start to look at this is that if we continue to try to work on these issues out of our own power, they will and always can remain and only remain chronic. We are not activists who argue our Christian worldview over and against other people's worldviews, who strive by human efforts to establish God's will on earth. The good news isn't a system or a program. The good news is an announcement. Remember this. Here's what God has done. Remember this, Jesus actually rose from the dead and is at work to disarm these powers. Act on this announcement. We are not ashamed to announce Jesus as rescuer and Lord, who's the only source of power that reconciles, who can put to rights all the things that don't make sense, like Dr. McKinney said. Jesus is the only one who can reconcile things. And if we're serious about setting a desegregated table, Paul says, and we should be, here is the good news that desegregates. So here's the three things I want you to remember. This is what Paul announces in Romans 1 through 11. Everyone is an outsider. Jesus saves you a seat. And God does not play favorites. Everyone's an outsider. Jesus has saved you a seat. And God does not play favorites. In Romans 1 through 3, this is what Paul's trying to show is that everyone's an outsider. There's no distinction, he summarizes in Romans 3, 22 to 24. There's no distinction between all of you. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is naturally outside of that table at the kingdom. 
The depth and the power of evil isn't just an intellectual issue, Paul says. The depth and the power of evil is something deeper and more difficult to eradicate than we could ever imagine. Because as people, we can give ourselves over to evil and need rescue. Everyone is an outsider to the kingdom who needs rescuing, Paul says. No one has a right to claim at the table of God. See, Romans states what we learn and what we know and what we discover is that the secular idea of tolerance and inclusion is great in theory. But in practice, it is far too anemic to transform the sickness of the human heart. We need a power that can take us into salvation. Good intentions are not enough. They're good, they're important, but they're not enough. Legal measures are not enough. They're good, we'll work for them, but they're not enough. Our programs and the best of our human efforts in programs are not enough. We need an actual power that can transform the sickness in the human heart and the sickness in our society. Because Paul says, we're all immersed in it. We're all outsiders. The world says, be an outsider. Be an insider, excuse me, be an insider. Strive to become elite. Because the best we can do, since we're all outsiders, is make this small circle of insiders and keep everyone else out to lie to ourselves and tell ourselves we're not an outsider. So if you feel like you're being left out, if you feel like you're lonely, if you feel like something's getting somebody, somebody's getting something you're not, you're right. You're an outsider. But so are they. Everyone's an outsider, Paul says. It's just different degrees. That's why the announcement of Jesus as Messiah and Lord is described by Paul for what it is and must be for God's will to be done on this earth. It's a power unto salvation. And that's what he goes into in Romans 4 through 8. Romans 4 through 8. Do you remember the promised feast that it talked about in the, um, in the Old Testament and that Jesus talked about in Luke's gospel? Here's the summary of Romans 4 through 8. God has promised to throw a party. God has promised to set this table. And the first one to hear that promise was Abraham. He got an invitation to this party and he RSVP'd. And his, his response basically said, yeah, I'll come because I believe that party is going to be there. That's what faith is. Saying yes to the invitation to a party that we actually believe is going to happen. And the way that we know that that party actually will happen and that hope will come true is because of Jesus. Because somebody actually lived and actually died on a cross and actually rose from the dead to save us a seat at that party. That's what chapter five says. See, we live in a world that tells you that you need to secure your own place at the table through power or, or reputation or, or freedom or talent or wealth or connections. But remember the first thing, everyone's an outsider. The second thing, the good news is Jesus has saved you a seat. And it doesn't depend on your good looks. It doesn't depend on your wealth. It doesn't depend on you getting it right. It doesn't depend on your family connections. It doesn't depend on which ethnicity you come from. It depends on the fact that God loves you wildly and abundantly and more than you could ever imagine, has gone to the cross and raised from the dead to save you that seat. Step up and take it, Paul says. That's what faith is. I'll take that seat. I'm going to show up at this party. And then Paul in, in, in Romans 7 to 8 talks to us about the Holy Spirit. Because it's no good just waiting for a party that's going to happen after you die, Paul says. 
The Holy Spirit, the same one who will raise you from the dead, the same one who will make sure that table is set, that same Holy Spirit will live in you here and now so you experience and live into this grace. I have a friend on the East Coast whose name is actually Grace. And she's um, African-American, worked in one of these storefront churches in an urban area of Philadelphia. She said, you know the problem with you people in your white churches? You go to church on a Sunday and you pray that God's going to heal you and you pray that this will happen. You pray that that'll happen. But you've worked pretty hard to keep yourself pretty comfortable and make sure you're well covered if that prayer isn't handled. She said, in my church, if God does not give us rent money on Sunday, we're being evicted on Monday. In my church, if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up and get something done, no one else is doing it for us. It was very convicting. This is what Paul says. It's not just a party that's going to happen at the end of time. The same Holy Spirit who will bring all this to bear is here to answer your prayers here and now. Is here to work among God's people here and now. Is here to lead in prayers here and now. Start living into the reality that this is the party that's going to happen here and now. You are loved and forgiven, and Jesus has saved you a seat. But here's the third really important thing, then, that Paul says, and don't you dare forget this. God does not play favorites. Remember what's happening in Rome? It would be so much easier for the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians, just to say, you know what? None of this city wants these Jews. The rest of the city doesn't really know how to tell the difference between Jewish Christians and and, and Jews who are not Christians. So just let them have their churches, and we'll have ours. Easiest thing in the world. And you'll remember in chapter 12 where Paul says, do not be transformed to that kind of thinking. But first in 9 to 11, he says, get this straight. God gives God's favor to people, but God does not play favorites. So what this meant was God gave God's favor to the Jews, and God will never take away the invitation to the Jews. Never. God gave God's favor and God's promises to the Jews to invite all the nations in. And Paul says, God's never taking that invitation away. And for the non-Jews who find themselves side by side, Paul says, watch out. God's given you God's favor, but you're not some new favorite. Don't think God's thrown away the Jews and started over with you. God does not play favorites. See, we live in a world that says, my enemies are God's enemies. My enemies are God's enemies. And we are people who naturally call our gods down to strike against our enemies. But we follow a rescuer and a Lord who said, love your enemies and pray for the good of those who hate you. Paul repeats it. Do kindness and goodness to your enemies. Do not answer evil with evil. We have a God whose mercy and patience is infinite. So that's the whole story, Paul says. That's the thing we've got to not only remember, but live into by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what brings us to chapter 12, and when you start putting flesh and bones on this stuff, when Paul says, offer your whole selves to God. And why do we need to know all that from 1 to 11? Well, here's the reason. We live in the face of a massive, visible reality in the world that absolutely denies that everyone is in the same predicament, that denies the hope of the kingdom of heaven, that denies the possibility that Jesus has saved a seat, that denies the reality that God does not place favorites. And as Francis Watson writes, in the face of a massive visible reality in everyday life, it makes confidence in an unseen greater future reality hard to maintain. Hope requires social support. Hope 
requires social support. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. Hope requires social support. The announcement of this gospel requires a society and a people who will live this out with courage and conviction. Who in the face of forces that tell you to strive to be an elite, live into the reality that everyone is an outsider. Who in the face of forces that tell us that no one is going to save you anything, we live into the reality that believes that grace has abundantly given us everything we need so we do not have to strive to hold and to defend what life resources we have. In the face of forces that say that God plays favorites and your enemies are God's enemies, we live into the reality that God does not play favorites and God died for God's enemies. Offer your whole selves to God, Paul says. Let this truth transform who you are and everything that you say and everything that you do. We need this word and we need God's spirit. We need the letter of Romans to inspire us to make hope a feast of the kingdom of heaven tangible in the city of Seattle. Because there's a lot of parallels to Seattle as there were to Rome. And I'll just close with this. Do you realize that we are one of the most segregated cities in America? Seattle is one of the most segregated cities in America. And it seems to me that we have a lot that we can learn from our gospel choir, for example. Our gospel choir goes to a lot of these smaller churches in in the city and worships with them and can come back and tell us stories about what our brothers and our sisters in these other churches that we are segregated from are experiencing. We need the urban partnerships that we have in other places. We need to learn from Reverend Dr. McKinney and our African-American brothers and sisters. And we need to learn not only from from these other churches, but we need to learn from people who are right here around us in the neighborhood. I know that among our international scholars, our global friends, our our non-white students at the University of Washington, that they face racism, that they face xenophobia. We need to learn from them. We need to hear their stories. We need to learn what it means that that we invite our international students in around the table into a fully segregated table and not just into into a doorway that's only them and and them alone. We don't segregate within our own congregation. And we need to and we can learn what it means to have a neighborhood where we do not have separate tables. Where even in our own homes we bring around people that just make us creep us out, make us feel weird. We need to prayerfully seek a way for God's will to lead us forward with Larson Fellowship and how we open up the table there to expend hospitality to our neighbors. And we do so without naivete, knowing that we are going to face forces that would rather see humans made in the image of God living isolated and captive on the street than in the full stature and glory of God that they were created. We are going to face forces that tirelessly seek to see the body of Christ divided into Korean churches and black churches and Chinese churches instead of seeing all the nations and races united in witness to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of all the nations. We are going to face forces that agitate for the rich and the well-fed to feast at their own tables, distinct from the poor, rather than reflect the scandalous generosity of God. And we face those forces, first of all, ultimately, inside our own souls. So let's pray. Let's offer our whole bodies to God for God to work through us and through our lives to lay out his feast of the kingdom, to make hope social and visible and tangible here in Seattle and around our world. Amen. 
For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.